0: Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey podcast, episode 18A. That's part one of two for episode 18. We're going to be joining you every week to talk IT career, news, and opinions based on our points of view. I'm your host, John White, at v Journeyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at
1: networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? I'm doing great, John. We are a couple of VMware solution engineers looking to bring you career advice we've been given earlier in our careers. We hope our discussions will be relevant across disciplines and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip.
0: Great, Nick. how is that opening for you?
1: I liked it. It was good. I mean, I I drank coffee before the show as usual, so I'm juiced. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little bit under the weather, but uh,
0: I'm feeling good about it, too. Awesome.
1: Well, maybe maybe once we finish, you can get some rest. Yeah. Good luck with that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So our topic this week, we have part one of an interview we did with Joseph Griffiths. Joseph is go- is a, um, a staff solution architect with uh, VMware, um, but he's not really on to talk about VMware. Um, he's here to talk about career journey. You know the same thing we always talk about. So um, with that in mind, Nick, you actually know Joseph, right? You are the one who actually approached him to
1: come on and do this interview. How do you know? Absol- this? Absolutely, I'll be playing the part of talent scout this week, but I. I started listening to the V. Brown Bag podcast when I was studying for my VCP a while back, and I listened to one of the recordings done by Joseph and ended up reaching out to him with some questions, and he was very helpful and found out he was moving down to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I think that was a little over a year ago, and got him involved in the, a local IT pro networking group called Spicecore here, and he's done some very good talks for that, and based on that, I thought he'd make a great candidate for our podcast, but you know what? I won't give too much more away, John, because I need to let everybody build up a little bit of suspense for the goodness they're about to hear. So let's get to the interview.
0: And we are joined by Joseph Griffiths, who is a staff solution architect at VMware, one of our colleagues. Uh, Thank you very much for making the time, Joseph. Thanks, John. Thanks, Nick. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about actually right off the bat is that solution architect role um, you know, Nick and I both have solution engineer titles. And I think there's probably a lot of confusion out there what the different titles mean and, and what they do. So maybe you could talk about that solution architect role a little bit and what the solution architect does.
2: Absolutely. I'm happy to do so. So uh, at VMware, a solutions architect is a little bit different than a lot of other organizations. Uh, the primary role uh, of a solutions architect at VMware is to, Identify uh, business problems and help come up with innovative solutions to solve those business problems and assure that our customers get the outcome that they are looking for to solve those business problems. So, you know, instead of thinking about how do I solve provisioning, I think about what does provisioning do to drive revenue or can it drive revenue or is it really a cosplay? And I start to help our customers up level their conversation with their bosses and their managers in a way that allows them to do cooler things and innovate and really drive business results for a company.
0: Cool. So how do you see that contrasting with the solution engineers that you interact with on a regular basis?
2: (laughs) It's a really good question. So as I think about it, you know, if we think about the different roles, there's the engineer and there's the architect, right? Uh, Traditionally, in, in any business we deal with, an architect is someone who understands the business outcomes um, and tries to architect solutions to meet the business outcomes. Where a engineer is someone who takes those specifications that come from the architect and implements them, builds them, and makes sure the engineer. So we, we've got a difference in um, understanding and direction uh, of you know where one is uh, far more deeply technical, which is the engineer side, and one of them is a more high level business. Now I will say you know at, at VMware we understand the need that everything needs to be driven from a business perspective. So our engineers are also becoming business focused and making sure they get those outcomes while the architects are looking to build architectures that help solve those that each of the engineers can execute on.
1: One place where you find a lot of architects and engineers is VMworld. And I just, I have a story about that, that i like to share. I'd like you guys to go back with me, go back in your minds. The year was 2007, the event VMworld, a large technology stage, plenty of vendors, a lot of good information to take in, smart presenters. And I imagine a young Joseph Griffiths, unsure of his place in the world, ready to make that next move. And, you know, I would finish the story, but I'm going to let Joseph tell it a little bit better because I think that was a turning point for you, Joseph. Can you speak to that a little bit for us?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, honestly, guys, I feel a little bit like Luke Skywalker, and you're about to hand me a lightsaber here. Uh, g- good intro, though, Nick. I appreciate it. So, uh, th- this is an interesting story. Uh, you can read a little bit more about it on my blog. But basically, at that point, I was a systems administrator for a mid sized company, and I got to attend VMworld. It was more than anything, just a perk from my employer. Good employee, go to VMworld, enjoy the conference. And I went there to learn. And I sat down in rooms with Carl Eschenbach and other people at the time who were leading VMware. And I got the vision of what they were trying to achieve. And it was so different than what I had understood my job to be. Because at that point, my job had been very much keep the lights on. And they were talking about cloud. And they were talking about future things. They were talking about innovation. And they honestly inspired me. Uh, And suddenly I realized, you know, there's so much more I could be doing with IT and there's so much of a wider world out there. And I've been living in a little box for a long time, and I really need to get outside of that box. And I need to make myself a little bit more marketable to these people so that I can have opportunities to do really exciting and interesting and innovative things instead of uh, you know, constantly protecting and keeping up servers and building Linux operating systems and Solaris OSs, which is what I was doing back then. So it, it really it was a huge eye-opener and a pivot point for me. And, and I decided, well, you know, in order to do that, I've got to go get some certifications because how do I stand out uh, against 10,000 other applicants? there's nothing really remarkable. I didn't go to Harvard and I didn't go to some great school that just stands out right there off the top of my head. I went to a great college, but it wasn't doesn't stand out on my resume. So at the end of the day, I realized that the thing that I've got to do is go grab certifications because that at least gets me to the top of the stack. And then I can do the rest with my ability to speak and do in front of the people in the interview, but I got to get through the the filtering process first. So that drove me on a pretty hyper path of certification for a while there.
1: That's so interesting now was it was it difficult to change your mindset when you were met with these you might just say difference of opinions or uh, something different than maybe you had been focused on before
2: huh well I, I think that um, mindset change depends on the person that you are right uh, I think that some people can hear ideas internalize them because they go on the same journey, at least mentally, and then apply them in their lives and do really well. And I think some people are afraid to internalize those or think that they are, maybe they know better. I've never been a person like that. I always approach everything from the aspect that everybody has different life experiences. And because of the differences in their life experiences, they have a unique way of looking at the world and their perspective is incredibly valuable. So when I listen to people, I listen honestly, to understand um, their perspective and gain wisdom from it. And and so I was able to take the ideas and say, you know, those ideas are solving a lot of the problems. I mean, they were talking about private clouds in seven, right? Uh, 2007. So uh, those are solving a lot of the problems I had day to day back then, huge problems that I was facing. And so for me, it was pretty easy to go. Yeah, I'm going to go build that. I'm going to go start doing that. And those are the kind of things that I want to be doing. I don't want to be, you know, rolling Solaris operating systems for the rest of my life. It really wasn't what I wanted to be doing with my career. So I, I guess it really depends on your, your own personal mindset and your approach to learning. Um, I think it becomes easy for all of us as we start to get good at what we're doing that we can get kind of prideful and not willing to learn. And I think that's super dangerous. So I guess if I could say any inflection point comes from it, you know, we all need to stand back and say, we've still got a lot to learn.
1: John, I bet you have an opinion on this.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's so interesting to hear that your vision of what the company was doing was challenged um, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, it, it's, <laughs> let me back up. Uh, my mind's racing with that, right? I think that a lot of times people put the company that we work for in kind of a box and say, you know, oh, you know, that organization does this and, and I definitely paint other organizations with a broad brush. Oh, that's the company that does that. And it's very, um, it's kind of like a blinders on about the intricacies and vision that other organizations have. So it's really interesting to hear that not only was your, your, uh, your thoughts about the organization challenge, but you actually, you know, pursued uh, and, and, uh, and took on that challenge and, and, made a big change in your
2: life. Yeah, there was a a fair amount of change that came out of that uh, experience. I mean, I immediately went back and became an advocate for building a proper private cloud. Um, And and the interesting thing about that is once I started really becoming an advocate for it, I found that there were other champions in the company who were interested in doing the same thing. And and ultimately, that pivoted us into a position from being um, a a single provider of IT services to being a multi-tenant Cloud provider for a number of organizations, and that was a journey we went on mostly because I was championing that and driving it through from a technology standpoint. Um, you know, ultimately that particular effort it kind of failed, and the reason it failed was because I didn't comprehend the people and process changes necessary. I was only focused on the technology, right? I went and built the best private cloud I could, but when it came down to how much are we going to charge people and can we charge people. I hadn't validated those things, right? And so it became an epic failure. Things like uh, capacity planning and planning ahead for capacity wasn't something I thought of back then. So it became a failure. It was really an an immature private cloud, but it taught me a lot, right? And we really tried to do it, and it set me up for my next success in building a more mature cloud that I was working on for the next company I went to. And, and you know, those are the way we learn things. For me, I learned through doing the journey and living through the journey, and I have to experience it to be able to learn from it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I also wonder um, the the part that the certification track and the certification training played in that, um, because you mentioned that it, it was a way that you felt that you had to stand out from the crowd when you were um, maybe looking for new opportunities, but did it actually help you in that journey of uh, um, advancing the maturity of the internal uh, private cloud offering?
2: Yeah, um, so I'll answer that a little bit differently than the way you asked, because I I think that what you're getting at is actually really important, which is, does the journey of of trying to achieve certifications teach you things that are valuable in your career? Um, And and the answer to that emphatically is yes. Uh, You know, when I started on the path at the time, I wanted to become uh, more VMware-centric. Selfishly, uh, back then, my desire was, my Linux operating systems keep going down. Um, you know, I want to move into a job that has some sort of availability built in, so that I stop getting calls at three in the morning. VMware looked like it, so I decided to go get a bunch of VMware certifications. And I, you know, I started at the bottom with the VMware Certified Professional, and that meant I had to go to a training class that I managed to convince my employer to send me to. So I went to it and got educated on it, and I learned a bunch from that. And then uh, you know, beyond that, to the what VMware calls the, the VMware Certified Advanced Professional levels, those levels, there's uh, one that's a design exam and one that's a uh, hands-on exam. And both of those required me to independently study on my own and learn those topics. Um, for me, the, actually, the most valuable one was the design one, because I had been sucked, stuck in the engineer role for so long having to move to design and think about requirements, constraints, functional versus non-functional architectural concepts actually stretched me quite a bit um, and taught me a, a huge amount that I wouldn't be able to do my current job with had I not had those things. So for me, you know, each of those steps really, really pushed me to a point of learning and gaining new knowledge. Um, so I I've, I have i am kind of a certification nut. And the reason I am is because it gives me a goal to work toward that forces me to learn new things And that's been really, really a a good driver for me in career advancement. And then as a nice side effect to your point, uh, it allowed me to look good on on resumes that allowed me to get interviews for jobs that I normally wouldn't have gotten. That is, I, I fully believe that the only reason I got an interview for VMware as a solutions architect was because of the certifications I was carrying. And then the only reason I got the job was because I was able to sound good when I was talking to people in the interviews, right? So it's both sides of that. It's not just having certifications doesn't equal jobs. You've got to be able to also represent yourself correctly.
1: That's good. I was actually going to ask if organizations you had been applying for understood the differences in those advanced exams, the difference between the design separate and apart from, you know, the tactical engineering components. Did you have to explain that in any interviews?
2: Hmm. So, so that's an interesting question. Um, so, I, I hold two of VMware's highest level certification, the VMware Certified Design Expert, or the VCDXs. And um, what I have found is that most people doing interviews are looking for for people who have the VMware Certified Advanced Professional, uh, and not looking for VCDXs. There's a few companies out there that are looking for VCDXs, uh, VMware being one of them, and a few others out there that are targeting VCDXs, but. You know, the number of VCDXs is, is in the 300 range, so it's it's a very small population. So I found, for the most part, that particular certification requires a little bit of explanation, unless you come from the technical side of the house and then they know who that is or what that is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, on the VCDX level, I've had to do some explaining on what that is and how hard that is to get from a certification perspective. At the VCAP level, they understand that to be a little bit higher than VCP, so they usually know what that is at the VMware level.
0: That makes sense. You, you mentioned a couple things there. One was, uh, I think maybe rewinding a little bit, was that idea of learning with intent, I think that you touched on in, in one of your blog posts. Um, but it's also interesting that in the VM world, you know, you would be applying for a role and the people wouldn't know what a VCDX was. Uh, did did that indicate to you that you were not applying at the right place, maybe?
2: <sighs> that's an. That's uh, actually, I've never considered that.
0: <laughs>
2: Thank you for bringing it up. Now that you mention it, yeah, probably. Uh, I, I had never considered it at the time. Uh, you know, I think you naturally uh, see job opportunities and you apply for them. Um, after I got became a VMware certified design expert, I did get a number of hits on my resume and lots of job opportunities, especially with um, startups that would be doing business with VMware. Ultimately, I didn't decide to go that route, uh, you know, and, and ultimately uh, fend off that way. You know, as I as I think about certifications and, and this this whole, you know, does it benefit you? Is it something that just gets there? You know, the test king kind of shenanigan, which is um, if I get a certification, it's just so that I can get the job. I, I like to think of it this way. Um, early on in my career of, of trying to become something different than I was at the time, Um, I interviewed for technical account manager jobs at VMware. And I had an interview um, with uh, Dane Hirschberger, who's a a, a SE up in uh, Michigan, I believe at this point. And and he was uh, doing what we would usually call a personality interview, where he talks to me about my personality, figures out if I'm going to fit right within the team and all that. And and it was really interesting because we had a conversation and he really opened my mind to something from a career path. Uh, I said, you know, Why are you doing the job you're doing right now? Why are you a technical account manager uh, when you used to work in technology? Why are you doing something? And he said, you know, he had a good friend who was the CEO of a company. And he met with his friend. He said, look, I'm I'm like a a solutions engineer and you're a CEO. How did you become a CEO? And he said, well, I I became a CEO by having a very purposeful career where I chose to do different things. I'd spent two or three years in different jobs so that I could learn every portion of the company. So by the time I got to the point where I had done a two or three year tour in every portion of the company, I really understood the company. And I was in a better place to be able to become the CEO of a company because I understood sales. I understood marketing. I understood supply chain. I understood, you know, backline support. Uh, I think that that's very true of all of us is that we have a tendency to get comfortable. And when we're comfortable, we kind of sit back on our laurels and go, you know, Oh, it's nice here. It's comfortable. But we kind of stopped learning at that point. We artificially limit our ability to learn by not making ourselves uncomfortable. Uh, You know, my desire with certifications was to constantly push myself, not too much to overload. Uh, You know, I set reasonable timeframes and anyone who's read my blog Uh, We'll understand that I'm a firm believer in set a certain amount of time, like one hour a day you're going to spend on that, spend the one hour doing it, and then do the other things in your life. Not cramming, not slamming, not trying to get it all done at ridiculous times, right? I'm a big fan of moderation and trying to get things done by having a dedication of doing it every day instead of trying to do it all in one hour or one day. Uh, And so I I think that kind of purposeful decision-making and forcing yourself to grow it is something that's really benefited me in my career and in my life is that I constantly push myself to be uncomfortable. And, and I switch jobs when I become comfortable because it becomes boring to me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's something that I, I remember saying a bunch of different times, which is if you're comfortable, you're not growing. Like you, you cannot grow while you're hundred percent comfortable, right? So you have to be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable and that's the the place where you're growing. Uh, that resonates with me. I, I,
2: I wish it wasn't true. I wish that I was a person who could choose to grow, even when I was comfortable. I just haven't found myself to do that. It's a, it's a personality problem of mine. Sounds like we share it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good personality problem to have if it's propelled you both as far as it has. Uh, you know, I've met a lot of people who don't have that same <laughs> personality flaw, if you will. They're not interested in in the growth mindset. And it's so interesting how when you're in the day-to-day and fixing problems, putting out fires, how difficult it is to train your mind to step back and look at the situation uh, from a holistic standpoint. Just like you said, Joseph, how all the cogs and wheels of the organization affect what you might be doing and how you might be able to change those with the things you're doing instead of, Oh, I'm just using technology to do these three things. And I I can't really see outside of that. That seems to be a very large difference maker between the extremely successful it pro and the person who, you know, just gets to be the better and smarter engineer. Hmm. So
2: a story comes to mind uh, that has some value in our conversation right now. When I was uh, 17 years old, I uh, worked for a uh, fast food place that made uh, tacos, Mexican fast food. And, And my job was to get up at 530 in the morning, come in, and I would fry all the taco shells and the chips, you know, the hard taco shells. And the chips and the other uh, items, I'd make the uh, fresh salsa, do all the prep work so we could open at 10 in the morning. And it was just me and the manager every morning. And, and basically, I did like four hours of the exact same thing, five days a week, every day. You know, it was incredibly boring work. And, and as I thought about it, my thing was to try to figure out how I could more efficiently fry the taco shells so that I could get done um, sooner from that process, right? That would that was literally what I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out during, during those some like three years that I did that job. Um, so I think that no matter what you're doing, um, you can find ways to grow and improve what you're doing. Uh, it doesn't need to be that you're moving from job to job. I, I want to be cautious with the thing that, that there's some sort of ladder that we're all climbing. Right. Um, I think that people Need to find out what they're passionate about and do that, and be really great at what they're doing. You know, I I was listening to the radio today, and Michelle Obama was talking about. um, They asked her the question of whether she should run for, or whether she's planning to run for office, and she quite simply said, "That's what other people want. You have to be careful with what other people want and with what you want." And she said, "You know, I, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm passionate about." So, you know, as I as I think about this, don't. This isn't just about climbing a career ladder. It's about finding something that you're passionate about and doing it and doing it great. Um, you know, at that time in my life, I was pretty passionate about frying taco shells for whatever reason. And I was determined to become the best taco frying person I could be. And honestly, the the sad thing is I'd probably still be frying taco shells if I could afford to live that way. I, the the pay wasn't great, honestly. Uh, you know, (laughs) it's pretty hard to have an apartment on that. Uh, so (laughs) there, there, were some outside factors that propelled me out of that job. And it was mostly the pay related thing. Right. Uh, sad to say at this point. So I I just, I, I, always want to be cautious to say, look, um, if you, you know, you're the janitor, be the best janitor you can be. There's nothing wrong with that ever. Right.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, something that Nick, uh, was kind of touching on, I think was this idea of business orientation, you know, so we as individuals can manage our careers and manage our passions. One of the things that we can do in an operations role is to kind of, I don't know, if we're in a position to influence the organization and and how it's structured, um, you know, different IT organizations are structured different ways. But it seems like, you know, a very typical one is kind of, you know, it's a cost center, it's um, doing a set certain number of things, and you touched on, or maybe it was Nick touched on, you know, being aligned with the business and and knowing what it is that the business is doing. I think that's what you were talking about in kind of um, managing your career and managing different roles within an organization. But an IT organization can do the same thing, right? The IT organization can be aligned with knowing what it is that sales is trying to do. An IT organization can be aligned with knowing what marketing is trying to do, what the, um, the uh, logistics part of the business is trying to do. And, and by doing that, the IT organization can be a better organization, not just the people within it. Am I off base? Am, am I just way, way in the clouds
1: right now? Does that make any sense? The cloud, just one cloud, John.
2: That <laughs> There are many clouds, and all of them had value for different reasons. Uh, actually, I would say you're spot on. Um, I, I, I like to think of this as a little bit of a journey, guys. Uh, so for, for me, it's important to understand how we got to where we're at and how we can fix where we're at, right? Which is um, when we first started, IT was basically running some minor functions, doing some stuff that geeks like to do, like number crunching or something like that, right? The old mainframe days. Uh, at this point, we had a bunch of smart people who basically did everything, including building the machines and, and the ray tubes that went into them, right? Um, and, and the capacitors as they went. Uh, then we got into uh, you know the client server world that we're in today. Um, and, and as we got into that world, what we did is we decided that IT has a lot of complexity, infrastructure specifically. So we segregated roles, we created storage people, we created uh, networking people, we created server people, we've now created virtualization people, we've created all of these, these roles. Um, and this allows us to maintain better consistency, better subject matter expertise, and, and supposedly improves the quality of our, our, our outcome product, right? Um, the biggest problem with this is that it's really, really moved us away from developers, uh, who ultimately report to lines of business who ultimately, hopefully if you're in a a publicly traded company, drive revenue or do the thing that the company ultimately cares about doing. Um, and so at this point, because of the, the siloed nature of, of these teams, and then even more siloed within it, because a lot of teams are broken into, you know, plan, build, run. So architecture operations and engineering being separate roles within each of those silos, we're so far extracted. Um, if you go to the average IT worker and you say, hey, uh, what did you do today that helped your company's revenue? They may not even be able to answer that question. And, and so I do think that you know the demand of the future is for IT shops to become less concerned with the nerd knobs, uh, to use the term of your podcast here, and more concerned with the reality of the world, which is IT is driving business today. It is a competitive difference and the business wants to take advantage of that competitive advantage. And they're either going to do it with the internal IT because the internal IT is aligned with them, or they're going to go find someone in some sort of IT shop that will do it for them. And that's the reality of the world and why we've seen, you know, what is so nicely termed uh, shadow IT, which I really would call business led IT at this point.
0: Yeah, that I, idea of if I'm not being serviced, then I'll go and find somebody who will service my requirements and my needs.
2: There's a lot of fast food shops in the world. If I'm not getting a taco here. I can drive three miles and get another taco.
1: But can you make shells like Joseph Griffiths? I don't know.
2: You know what the sad thing is? Uh, my my desire to be incredibly efficient on making the best shells in the world is actually uh, the exact same paradigm that we've just been talking about, right? Oh, yeah. Um, are are my shells a competitive advantage that cause customers to come and eat there the way Joseph Griffiths makes them? The answer is no, they weren't. And in my optimization and efficiency desires to make that better. Are those things going to make anything better for my company? Are they going to reduce costs? Am I going to leave five minutes earlier? Because I think no. So ultimately it was a great effort in Joseph Griffiths doing what Joseph Griffiths enjoys doing and keeping his job interesting but it failed to drive any real value to my business. Um, and, And this is the problem we have with IT is that they're focused a lot of things that they think are good things to be doing, optimizing the environment. But if it doesn't have an impact to the business, it's ultimately not where they should be spending their time if they want to continue to be part of the business.
1: Now, I remember a story you told at a Dallas-Fort Worth Spice Corps meeting about applying some of those same automation tactics to your role when you were you know, just an IT administrator, right? I think you said you had automated a certain percentage of your tasks and showed your boss and it kind of blew his mind.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think you just brought up a really good uh, career tip. So, so I'll, I'll do like a politician and, and waylay and then I'll answer that question. So uh, I, one thing that that is incredibly uncomfortable for me has been public speaking. Um, I think that's true of a lot of uh, IT professionals. It's not the place that they're incredibly comfortable. Um, and so for me, I started out by going to my local VMUG and saying, guys, I want to try doing a, a 30-minute presentation or a 15-minute presentation on some topic. And, and it was so uncomfortable and so not normal. And I just totally messed that thing up. Right. But I decided I'm going to keep going back and I'm going to get better at it. So every time I get an opportunity to do a presentation, you know, this year, um, I've done a couple of Spiceworks local meetings. I have spoken at Spice World. I've spoken at a couple of VMO user cons. I spoke at VMworld this year and last year. You know, I, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of speaking stuff. And th- that skill set wasn't developed by uh, reading books. It was developed by putting myself out there and failing infinitely and recording myself and (laughs) seeing how I failed and disliking how I looked and deciding I'm going to change things and just practicing over time and being willing to be uncomfortable. So, you know, a little bit of a a career tip. That's super uncomfortable for just about everybody in IT, including me. And really the only way to get better at it is by doing. So get out there and start doing. And everybody that's listening to you, is just as scared as you are when they get up there, trust me. Uh, You know, they they find ways to make it fun for themselves. They find ways to twist it for themselves. So back to the story you were talking about, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I did was I automated a a methodology. We had a system where we were doing storage expands, and uh, we would expand storage, and this process is we would realize that the storage was running out, and we would ask the storage administrators to expand the backend of the lawn, and then we'd have to go rescan it and expand it in VMware, and then we would go close the ticket. Um, you know, basically I automated everything except for the storage administrator's job because they didn't want that automated uh, in a series of small steps. And what it would do is it would open a ticket for the storage administrator for them to do their job, and then when they closed the ticket, it would go verify that they did what was asked, and then it would go expand it and do the whole work and basically save us about two to four hours a day of a single person's job. It it got huge amount of kudos from the business because I could immediately say uh, the person that was doing this two hours is now available to do something else. Um, You know, we had some sort of measurable, some sort of KPI to work on, which is something that you would think that people that are into technology are really good at, which is measurements. But you have to have those measurements come back and say, and we can staff one less person on the weekends because of it. And that's really where the value starts to come out of that's tying it back to the business.
0: That's so interesting. I I think a lot of people are always worried about automating themselves out of a job. Right. But I think that it's kind of a false fear as if they're sitting around and I, I don't know, maybe I was, you know, I, I hope I wasn't the only person who just had like 60 hours of work and I was trying to figure out how to do it in 40. <laughs> right. And so if I could recover 10 hours of my week, you know, I wasn't going to get fired because of that. <laughs> um, it's just a false fear, isn't
2: it? Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to think of the journey of, of manufacturing automation um, as, as a parallel here, right? When they got to the point where they brought in robotics, um, actually the robotics employed uh, almost 10 times the people that were employed in the auto factories, Uh, Now, not all of those people were working for Ford or for Nissan or one of those companies. A lot of them were working for the robotics companies, you know, building the robotics that were doing it. But there were a fair number of high-paying jobs servicing the robotics. Uh, I I think the same kind of paradigm shift is happening in IT, where we need to get out of the process of being focused on the things that are truly commodity, like, um, you know, what kind of compute server you use or, uh, you know, replacing hard drives. In, inside of storage arrays, it's a commodity job. It really isn't something that we internally should be necessarily paying people to do or be doing anymore. We should be focused in things that are clo- much closer to the value for the business. And it's the same thing with automation. You know, we had the 10x number of people that were working in the auto plant or as part of the auto plant ecosystem after we put the robotics in. We also produced 15 times the amount of vehicles when that happened, right? So we were able to get more done, and people were focused in doing more interesting, higher-paying jobs. So do I think that you know, automation is going to make our jobs go away? Um, if you find a lot of value in replacing hard drives, then yes, I, I, I do, right? If you find a lot of value in doing those manual tasks, your, your job is going to go away. If you're willing to adop, adapt and change, no. Your job's just going to get better because you're not going to be focused on things that keep you up in the middle of the night you're gonna be focused on things that automatically fix themselves in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah, I think that if we, you know, dive into that, you know, VMware administrator job, I think those people aren't worried about not having to replace disk drives. I think what they're worried about is, oh, you know, VMware, the, the installation of VMware vSphere, the hypervisor is now automated. And if something goes wrong with it, the remediation is automated. So what is it that I do? But again, I think that it's kind of a false fear, right? If you're spending all your time doing installations and remediations, you're actually not adding value to the organization. You know, everything that is of value to the organization is after VMware's up and running and stable.
1: Hmm. Yeah, And maybe it's a misperception because I think in a lot of cases we might think, okay, well, this is how I add value and I don't. Maybe I didn't realize how easy it is to automate this or that I could I know that sounds silly, but you know if you have if your eyes haven't been opened so to speak then you don't know what you don't know right
2: yeah I think in a lot of ways that that story that we started out with from from VMworld was an eye opening experience for me to your point Nick of, of opening your eyes <laughs>
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So uh, sorry to leave you on this cliffhanger, but if you want to hear the conclusion to that story and interview, come back and listen to next week's stunning conclusion to our Joseph Griffiths interview. But at any rate, come back and join us next week.
1: Man, I hope you didn't oversell it too. But it is a good second half. I mean, get your popcorn ready, folks. And I will say there's one thing we can never oversell on this podcast, and that's the John White School of Mentoring. So if you're out there Waiting in suspense to hear what Joseph Griffiths has to say, you can act now. DM at NerdJourney on Twitter and take advantage of the John White School of Mentoring today. Just a reminder that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and we're always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. All right,
0: farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, ad V journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. And we are joined today. Okay, yeah. So I just totally blanked right away. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. I didn't write down anything anything that I said I was going to do. I didn't write it down. I just said it out loud. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll Great. do it live. I don't even
2: know where I am, guys. So, you know, I, I'm completely lost.